trying to think of a joke. Couldn't even think of one. Does anybody have a joke? Other than the current administration? Yeah. Not one you can borrow. Okay. Uh, okay, so, you know, we've been going through our study as far as the kings. And I wanted to just highlight, kind of like uh, 1 Kings chapter 15 does it, in 16, they just kind of highlight the points of each king uh, in Israel. Because remember, we've got two kingdoms now. We have the kingdom of Judah, which includes Benjamin and Judah tribes. Uh, then we have the kingdom of Israel, which is the uh, ten tribes that were left. And I just wanted to kind of see what they were up to. Uh, they overlap a little bit with the kings of Judah, so it can get confusing. And when you read the book of Kings, make sure you're recognizing which kingdom you're in when it talks about a king. But I want to pull out some of the lessons that maybe we can learn today. So we're going to start in uh, 1 Kings 15, verse 25. And uh, we've, we talked about Asa and how he started off good, and then he made a treaty, and things just didn't go well. And uh, then we have Nadab. He was the son of Jeroboam. He began to reign over Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah. And he reigned over Israel only two years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he walked in the way of his father and in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. So there's nothing good to say about Nadab. Okay, He just basically failed. So then you have in verse 27, Basha, the son of AJ, I think that's what we decided to call him. <laughs> and uh, he was of the house of Issachar. And he conspired against Nadab. And Basha struck him down at Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines. For Nadab and all Israel were laying siege to it. So ba Basha killed him in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. And as soon as he was king, he killed all the house of Jeroboam. He left to the house of Jeroboam, not one that breathed until he had destroyed it according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servant A.J. the Shilonite. It was for the sins of Jeroboam that he sinned and that he made Israel to sin and because of the anger to which he provoked the Lord, the God of Israel. Now the rest of the acts of Nadab and all that he did are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? And then there was war between Asa, which is king of Judah, and Basha, king of Israel, all of their days. Okay, so this is interesting. So we have where Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, starts reigning. Now, what kings were before him? Was it just Jeroboam? Yeah. Yeah, so it was Jeroboam, and then Nadab takes over after Jeroboam died. It's funny, in one generation, the judgment of the Lord came down strong. So you have Nadab, he starts reigning. Now, Basha, I'm wondering if he's the son of the prophet A.J. Because it was A.J. that gave the word, yeah, that gave the word, I thought, to Jeroboam, that he would be, yeah. At that time, when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, the prophet A.J., the Shilonite, found him on the road and told him that basically he would be king. Well, then we have Basha, the son of A.J. Huh. Okay, that's, that's very interesting. Yeah. So the prophet's son 
unless I'm mistaken. I mean, I'm sure there were lots of AJs and Boshes running around. I don't know. You know, back in the day, was it like, you know, a lot of Kathy's running around, a lot of Gary's running around, a lot of Mike's running around? I don't know. But that's interesting. I might kind of dig in there. Now, the house of Issachar, it almost makes you wonder if there was like a conspiring. If, if we're correct, and this isn't in the notes, I'm just thinking out loud, right? So if we're correct that Basha was the son of A.J. the prophet who went to Jeroboam and told him that he would be the next king, then when they see that king bringing in all kinds of evil, right? It makes you wonder if A.J. the prophet spoke to his kiddo and said, hey, we've got to stop this or we're going to end up in big time trouble with the Lord. Or maybe he just didn't like Jeroboam and what he did. So then Basha kills Nadab his son and every descendant of Jeroboam fulfilling the word of the Lord to Jeroboam that all his family was going to be cut off. Well, and I think, you know, it's one thing. It's not, not like Jeroboam just accidentally sinned. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was pretty plain yeah. that you have got to do X, Y, and Z. Or yeah, he told them. Yeah. And he basically just shook his fist in the, you know, in the face of God and said, I'm going to do what I want to do. Yeah. And so. out of fear and insecurity. Yeah. yeah, because the presence of the Lord, and that's interesting. You know, you know that podcast you know, I've been listening to? <laughs> it, it reminds me of this, like church politics, mm -hmm. where you have a group and they look at the leader and they're like, they're not, you know, following God and they begin like this character assassination or whatever it is to get them out. It's almost like, a, you know, because you see like church splits, that's mm -hmm. how they happen is people get offended with the leader for sometimes good reasons, yeah. sometimes not good reasons. They think they can do a better job. Before you know it, you got the prophets lining up against the teachers and the pastor lining up against the elders and then bam. There's this entire church split. It's if if we're correct that Basha is the son of the prophet that delivered the word to Jeroboam, this is a very interesting turn of events, and uh, it's also like um, well, I'll I'll go th that direction another time. But I'm not sure I would want to be the one to start just wiping out an entire line. Have y'all noticed it doesn't usually work out good? Whoever the instrument of judgment is, it never works out good, ever. They usually are the ones that end up uh, destroyed. Because here's the thing. Remember how we learned in the different levels of discipline, which to me was one of the best things I've studied. Like, it answered so many questions. But how that whole process, that rabbi process of handing someone that refuses to repent over to Satan uh, for the destruction of the flesh but to possibly save the soul. If they repent, then they need to be allowed back into the group, right? And, uh, and so when you look at how you've got Pharaoh, and he was chosen by God because of his hardened heart. It, God didn't harden his heart. His heart was already hardened. And so when you think back to, you got Pharaoh, you have different leaders where their hearts were hardened, you think about how you have to deliver one over to Satan. Why do you have to deliver one over to Satan? Because God is life. He has no death in him. In fact, he defeated death. So, in order for someone to be picked, like this guy, an instrument of judgment that begins to kill people, 
or Babylon that is prophesied they would destroy you know Judah there already has to be something in that person for them to be able to just wipe out entire lines I mean what do y'all think about that well I mean in different places in the Bible you know it talks about him raising up basically the enemy yeah in order to judge whatever they you know he decided to be judged yeah. it was usually the Israel people yeah know. well and what's fascinating too is the tribe of Issachar they knew the times and what Israel should do but it doesn't end good for Basha either and that's why I'm kind of thinking about these things because you, know, you have Elijah and he would pronounce judgment on um, Ahab and Jezebel uh, he allowed the people to kill the prophets of Baal because that was a legal issue and so they did kill the prophets of Baal but it's fascinating that Ahab repented and God just rushed in with forgiveness that that is incredible and uh, so I don't know it's just kind of an interesting thought was Basha chosen to wipe out the house of Jeroboam fulfilling the judgment of the Lord against him because his heart was already wicked and he would be the one to do it because I mean let's let's keep looking because if you if you look at um, Basha by him fulfilling the word of the Lord it does not make him uh, righteous now the word of the Lord was actually in 1st Kings 14 14 it says Moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who shall cut off the house of Joab. This is the day. What? Even now. So Basha illustrates the, quote, climate of competing rivalries. Whew, that's not an easy word to say. In northern Israel with the, its ten tribes and their several competing tribal centers and group. Now this is how the Anchor Yell Bible Dictionary. Now, you can contrast this to the southern kingdom that had one center in Jerusalem and one tribe. So, I guess what I'm saying is you have a presence-centered tribe of Judah and then the tribe of Benjamin down in the southern kingdom. They stayed closer to the Lord longer. Then you have the northern kingdom that has this whole counterfeit religious system set up. They went downhill quick. It was really, really fast. And then you've got this strife and this uh, competing that's going on where you have a man that wipes out the entire line. So even though Jeroboam opened himself up and his descendants to destruction, I guess what I'm saying is David, who was a presence-based leader, would not touch Saul. Mm -hmm. There were several prophetic words that were spoken that Saul was going to die in his line. And David wouldn't touch him. But here you have a prophetic word that is given to wipe out the entire line of Jeroboam. And I guess what I'm saying is woe to the person who sits in judgment and wipes out an entire line because your end will probably be just as bad. In other words, your heart was susceptible even though God gave the judgment. You well, understand what yeah. I'm saying? Yep. I, I don't want people to get confused, but I might be confusing myself. Well, what was the, uh, the beginning of the beef? That's all I can remember. When he was paid, the prophet that was paid to curse mm -hmm. the people. Mm -hmm. And he couldn't do and it. And he couldn't do it. And then, but he finally sowed the sin. And sin into that. So he was a true prophet, but he was a false prophet at the same yes. time. 
I mean, he was true because... That's so good. He was true because he spoke the word, word. but he was false because he caused them to sin. And, and he had a bad heart. Mm -hmm. So, I think that you, in this case... Balaam. It was Balaam. Balaam. Mm -hmm. So, in this case, you could... I think that they could... They had that gift of prophecy to prophesy, but maybe not necessarily... Be the ones be, that carry out the judgment. Yeah, and have a good heart and a, a true heart. God's heart. I'll put yeah, it that way. and these are questions that you know only the wisdom of God, which we'll get into, can answer. Right. Because you know, in the Old Testament, we've got men inspired by Holy Spirit writing these stories. You can see over and over and over that for them, God was the judge; He was the lawgiver. Yet His heart, by those that were present, centered was very long suffering very patient, and again, if anyone repented, he rushed in with forgiveness. It was like instant. He never withheld when someone repented. Um, and so you've got this situation where, okay, is this the take of the writer of this book that God's judgment was fulfilled, which there was, you know, a consequence, and God did it, or should we interpret it like Genesis 3, where it says, because you did this, Curses a ground for your sake, right? The word for your sake means this is a consequence of what you did. God had nothing to do with it. So God had nothing to do with Jeroboam setting up a counterfeit system leading the people into an incredible amount of idolatry. Jeroboam was all at fault for that because we know God gave him the same word he gave David, which is incredible. He's no respecter of persons. But because Jeroboam did not stay presence-focused, then what would have happened if he would have said, okay, so obviously both of us are in trouble because of Solomon. So Rehoboam, how about we're going to be two separate kingdoms based on the word of the Lord, but we want good relationship with our brothers. So we're, as a group, we're going to come down once a year and celebrate the feast with our family while still maintaining our separate government. Why couldn't it have been like that? Insecurities, mm -hmm. fears, power trips. It's the same thing in churches. We've all heard the stories. Like, just so people know, Joshua Harris, we talked about him Friday that wrote the book, I Kissed Day and Goodbye. Can't read that. I had him read that because I wanted him to have an idea of courting. Not dating, you know, try before you buy type thing. I wanted him to have a, an idea of courting. So I didn't mind him courting. And uh, anyway, so, you know, this kid, he writes this book. He becomes, you know, like a million copies sold, and he's still a teenager. He's homeschooled. He's in the evangelical movement. And then the Reformed theology comes in. So I guess that's Calvinism. Like, I have no idea. And uh, anyway, so people start writing him how bad that book was for them and how much damage it caused. And then in the meantime, the guy that mentored him began to fall. And then there's all this infighting and stuff. So there's this bonus episode where he is talking to the interviewer and he no longer identifies as a Christian. Well, first of all, Christianity is not something you identify with. It's not an identifying situation. It's who you are. You are a Christian, little Christ, Christ follower, right? And so... The guy that's interviewing was like, well, I got to put my pastor hat on. Hang on for a second. He said, just because your leader fell and just because, you know, you went through a crisis, how does that mean you leave God? Because it's about Jesus. 
It's, you know, everybody else. And it reminds me of this. You know, like, it's not about everybody else. Mm -hmm. It's about Jesus, right? And he said, well, let's suppose that he is the Son of God. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> Wait, suppose? So when he said that, all of a sudden it made sense because, and this is important, just because people say they're a Christian mm -hmm. or think they are a Christian does not mean that they are. There is one test, and it's uh, uh, 1 John 4, and this isn't in the notes, but yep. I think these are things to discuss because a lot of people, the fallout from even Josh Harris no longer identifying as a Christian has caused people to doubt their faith. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets, like you just brought up, I, I didn't connect that until now, have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is a spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. The whole thing about let's suppose he's the son of God tells me that this young man was probably never born again. He was probably raised up in a denominational where I guess you're a Christian by osmosis. Right. Right? right there, yeah. So then when the crisis of faith hit, he had, there was nothing to stand on. It, and it was also a very legalistic thing. I told Kent, because we've been talking about, because you know, we were he was homeschooled, right? And, and this is no offense against homeschoolers, so what I'm about to say... <laughs> But when we would go to these homeschool groups when he was little, it was like we were sore thumbs. It was almost cultish. Um, very insulated families, you know. Uh, Kent was like, what is wrong with this kid? He wore T-shirts and jeans and had long hair. I mean, it was like, you know, this family must be of the devil. Uh, the women wore clothes that were handmade, and I have no problem with that. But, you know, we are in 20, you know, like 2000 and stuff here. I mean, if you want to wear clothes back from 1940s and stuff, that's fine. But it was just this weird thing. And then there were a few of us, you could tell, that were spirit-filled believers. But all that to say, that is a community Josh Harris, Harris grew up in. Mm -hmm. And so it's very inward. There's no exposure to anything outside the group, Right. And so we got to start testing the spirits. Mm -hmm. There is no supposition that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is God in the flesh. Therefore, you must be born again so that you can have Him in you and spirit filled so that you can actually walk it out. So it's, there's a lot of religion and fake counterfeit stuff going on that the, this right here reminds me of, which opens the door to rivalries and all that stuff. So anyway, I am, um, yeah, it, it's pretty crazy. So we've got this competing thing going on. Well, and what I see too is you can live in your intellect. Yes. Because intellectually, maybe what they're doing here makes secular sense, you know, reasoning they have reasoned that they've left God out of the reasoning it's all intellectual reasoning yeah. and it's not wisdom 
Right. Which, again, we're going to dive into that. But, you know, another thought that comes to my mind on the question of I would not want to be the instrument of God is Matthew 18. If you see your brother sinning, right? So you go to him in private. They don't listen to you. You gather witnesses because it's a legal proceeding. So you gather witnesses. Now, the job of the witnesses, like we've talked about, is not to just sit there and look at, you know, what's going on. They're supposed to strenuously encourage repentance in the other person. If they refuse to repent, even with those witnesses, and this can't be over stupid stuff like they were mean to me or they didn't shake my hand or whatever it is. We're talking about sins. And if you want to know which ones we're talking about, they're in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So you have the situation where they don't listen. Then it says you tell it to the ecclesia like, hey, this person refuses to repent. Then it says where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst. So now you're executing a legal verdict against the offending brother or sister, which does this. It then turns them over to where the Lord leaves a hundred to go after the one. So it's actually the greatest act of mercy if you do it right, okay? But he also says, better not do it with the wrong heart. Because if you go and you pronounce judgment with someone in anger or you're in the wrong heart, guess what? All that you just did will come right back on you. So maybe that's what's happening here. That there's not a righteousness in the judgment. There is a intrigue and a motive to take the throne. So that might solve my question. I, sorry for the tangent. I just got off on a question and a tangent. And but you know, I think that's today's thing. We Because why else? Sometimes things to me make black and white sense. But we see... Christians mm -hmm. that want to make it gray, right? And they want to justify their own decisions about what you know the black and the white. You know why I voted for somebody that supports abortion? Yes, that has to be a justification in their mind. Yes, somehow on that. Because yes, to me that's black and white. Yes, right? you know. So I think there's different things like that today. Yeah, that people do. And they get in the middle and they, and they intellectualize and because of this. Mm -hmm. You know, because X, Y, and Z, well, then I'm going to support this person. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And it has nothing to do with God right. at that point. Right. right. Yeah, that's good stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and just so you know, prophets see black and white. Uh, yeah. Well, that oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. People that are either prophetic ministers Prophets themselves, they see everything black and white. So the nuance to that is always presence-based. See, I've been pondering this. I've really been pondering this presence-based as I've listened to this podcast because you can see selfish ambition. You can see wokeness. You can see all of this stuff. It is presence. In fact, I told Mike, I said, that's it's presence. And that's what I want. In fact, I was seeing on Fridays, I definitely want you all to see the craftsmen uh, by Bill Johnson because I know it's going to bless you guys. But I thought, you know, it might be good to just go through a soaking season. Mm -hmm. You know, refreshing and worship and soaking and, of course, eating, you know, food on Fridays. But just to recenter back on presence because we're all craftsmen, cr except for Gigi. He's the only weirdo. <laughs> As I think he is more than he realizes. He is. As craftsmen, we actually... Are builders and builders love building and sometimes you got to make sure that your building is full of the presence 
or you're building in vain. Anyway, so I thought that might be something fun to do. Uh, okay, so now I want to go deeper into the Anchor Yale Bible Dictionary because when I was studying this, I felt like Holy Spirit told me to look up Basha. And um, it says uh, the border war between Basha and then the southern king of Judah, which is Asa, was of long standing. Uh, I guess there's a cross reference to it in Jeremiah 41 9. I've never read that uh, in, in this context, so I'm not sure what it says. But the conflict apparently had to do with the position of the boundary between the two countries in the Central Hill Country, which was a strategic link and the main transportation route running from south to north. Okay, so now here we've got boundaries. So this is where, to me, this is just such a perfect picture of denominationalism. It really is. Because denominationalism is about territory. Don't take my sheep, you know. You stay on your side of the town, I'll stay on my side of the town, whatever it is. And so Basha gained the upper hand with his control of the town of Ramah, which was only five miles from the southern capital of Jerusalem. However, King Asa shrewdly used expensive gifts to entice the Syrian king of Damascus, Benadad, into breaking his covenant of peace with northern Israel. Remember, we learned that last week, and that made the Lord mad that he made a treaty with Syria. Uh, and uh, so he uh, broke this covenant of peace with the northern uh, Israel. He invaded Israel within its northern border. Basha that was thus forced to abandon the border dispute on his southern flank in order to deal with the threat from Damascus. Asa then immediately seized the border town of Ramah and pushed a few miles further north to Mitzvah, where he used building material left by Basha for his own own fortifications so that right there because we read that last week where again he made this um, this treaty and let me see yeah in verse 19 of 1st Kings 15 let there be a covenant between me and you as there was between my father and your father behold I'm sending you a presence of present of silver and gold break your covenant with Basha king of Israel that he will withdraw from me so Benadad listened to King Asa and sent the commanders of his armies against the city of uh, Israel and conquered several cities we see here, uh, all in the land of Naphtali. So when Basha heard of it, he had to stop building Ramah. He had to go up and fight Benadad. And so then Asa took over, and God did not like it. So we've got manipulation. We've got intrigue. We've got treaties with people. Uh, and I don't know if the, the border needed to be disputed, uh, but it led to lots of problems. Now, he, here's the thing. In James, I want to read this out of the Passion Translation to kind of get an idea as to why God was mad. Because when I look at what King Asa did, my, my strategic aspect, brilliant. <laughs> well done. You know, like, that, that's... That was really a smart move, and but God didn't like it. So then I'm like, okay, so I have to pull back my strategic uh, aspect of my character and be like, okay, why didn't you like that? Because that was actually pretty smart. Well, I think there's a lot of things that are going on here, but the key to it is here in James. If you consider yourself to be wise and one who understands the ways of God, advertise it, and I love that, with a beautiful, fruitful life guided by wisdom's gentleness. Never brag or boast about what you've done. 
and you'll prove that you're truly wise. But if there is bitter jealousy or competition hiding in your heart, then don't deny it and try to compensate for it by boasting and being phony. For that has nothing to do with God's heavenly wisdom, but can best be described as the wisdom of this world, both selfish and devilish. So wherever jealousy and selfishness are uncovered, you will also find many troubles and every kind of meanness or all evil is there. Where strife is, everything that's evil is there. But the wisdom from above is pure, filled with peace. It's considerate and teachable. It's filled with love. It never displays prejudice or hypocrisy in any form. And it always bears a beautiful harvest of righteousness. Good seeds of wisdom's fruit will be planted with peaceful acts by those who cherish making peace, not keeping peace. That's very important. Like, you know, we've talked about that. Peacekeepers will keep peace at all costs. Peacemakers are willing to uh, bring a sword if necessary to have lasting peace. Okay, so the characteristics of earthly wisdom taken from these verses are it's boastful, bitter jealousy, competition, phony, selfish, devilish, and mean. So when you look at, and again, I hate to just keep going back to the podcast, but that's all there, right? What is interesting to me is the ones that hide. But if there be bitter jealousy and competition hiding in your heart, that tells me that sometimes you may not know that there's bitter jealousy and competition hiding in your heart. So you have to look on the outside. Well, on the inside, but sometimes the outside can be an indicator. If you find yourself not celebrating the goodness of God being uh, displayed towards someone, then you are jealous and in competition. In fact, one of the tests of an individual with whom I gave a large gift to was her ability to celebrate other people's blessings. Okay? That is an indicator. So, whenever I had a conversation with a lady, a client, and uh, she's the one that said, y'all taught me worship in a brief time. You know, I was like, that's good. And uh, so we were talking about her uh, product, and she had gone to, I guess it sounds like some, I, I didn't quite understand it, but like some gathering of business people and stuff. And it sounded like it was a Christian event over in Dallas. And they, it was almost like a mastermind where they'll, you know, help each other and things, but I'm not quite sure. Anyway, she belongs to this. And this lady that worked for Neiman Marcus uh, absolutely fell in love with her product. And she said, okay, first of all, we need to fix the labels because you have a certain vibe and uh, that's just not quite where we need it. And she said, like, you're like a Perot vibe. So have y'all ever watched the Perot uh, Mysteries on A&E with it was Agatha Christie? Well, mm. here's a little behind-the-scenes story. I helped develop those last labels. Now, they weren't what I wanted. I actually told her, you have a Perot feel. So we need that font, we need this, we need that. Well, they had already been developed, so I just kind of tweaked them a little bit, so they went with her brand more. And then the men's line, we definitely went toward the, the level of Perot, but I was just trying to make it as easy as possible. Now, if I had bitter jealousy and competition in my heart, I would have been like, first of all, those labels weren't that bad, madam. Mm -hmm. Number two, you know, 
uh, I said Perot from the beginning. Yeah. You know, like that, that would have been. But instead, I am celebrating because this lady is called to something beyond me. We've got to stop centering people around ourselves. Our job is to help propel people into their destiny. And that's why I get so aggravated with the church system that's like, well, until you support my vision, I'm not going to support you. Well, sir, madam, you have the whole thing upside down. It should be like this. You exist to help everybody above you reach their goal. So when she told me this story, I am absolutely ecstatic because she needs people that have a level that I do not have that can get her where she needs to go. And I am in full support of that. I did say, oh, the Perot thing. Huh, we discussed that. And she said, I know, I told them that. You know, But we've got to be safety for people. You can't worry that what you're going to share with someone that's a blessing that's going to kick off bitter jealousy and competition that person. Let me tell you, I am a, I'm a competitive person. So I always have to be careful with that. Like when I used to play games with kids, they never won. I'm like, no, you need to learn how to win. You know, you need a life's rough out there. You know what I'm saying? I'm just here to make it easier for you. And I'm all for a challenge. But when competition becomes a way for you to feel better about yourselves and to not equip and challenge others, we have a problem. And so that's, that's what I'm talking about. Bitter jealousy and competition would have provoked, and I'm not saying this, I'm just using this as an example because there's plenty of times I'm like, you know, but it celebrates other people's successes. And here's a really good test. If the person gets what you want mm -hmm. and you can still celebrate, you're, you're good. You know what I mean? You're on your way for sure when you can celebrate when it's something you want so bad and they get it anyway. And that was the test of that big gift. The celebration of my new thing and that person celebrating that and not even realizing just a few moments later that individual would have the very thing I just got. How do we not know that we're right at the tipping point mm -hmm. and the last test is can you celebrate a person getting what you need or what you want so bad? And I think, you know, we were talking about how, how are you going to figure out your your good points and your bad points and I think those things like that are how. Yes. Yeah, that's what I meant by looking outside. How do you respond to other people's yeah. blessing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because Very good. An indicator of what's going on in you. So. Or and then sometimes you see like where someone gets something you want and then if you have this earthly wisdom, this demonic wisdom in you, you'll actually boast about what all you have. Mm -hmm. And you see that in the uh, Church of Corinth. Remember, we figured out from studying that number one, they were getting drunk. They were competing over who operated and what gifts. And then someone got killed in the thing too. And so it's like, wow, you murder and blah, blah, blah. That might have been like James. He's saying like you're killing each other for stuff. I mean, it was like the Wild West back in the day, you know. In Rome, we get upset if someone, you know, maybe wears a little bit of some revealing clothing. It's like, oh my God, you know, kick that person out. They were like killing each other over stuff. You've got a situation in the Corinthian church where they were just boasting against one another. Well, I speak tongues more than you do. Well, no, I speak in tongues more than And I get the interpretation. Well, I don't care. I just got a tumor off someone the other day. Well, I don't care. I just resurrected the dead. 
They're like, they're going at each other and they're, um, they're sectarian. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. Just follow Jesus. It's, it's that simple. Just follow him. If you follow him, then when leaders fail you, you're, you won't, you know, disidentify and deconstruct from Christianity, right? And so here's the thing. The fruit is never your ministry. It's never your results. The fruit is love, kindness, peace, faithfulness, joy, self-control, goodness, patience. There's one more. There's one more. Anyway, there's nine. That's the fruit, huh? Meekness. See, I, I meekness <laughs> yeah, in the patience man. <laughs> yeah, this is actually turned out better than I thought it would be today. Okay, now heavenly wisdom is pure. It's filled with peace. It's considerate. It's teachable, filled with love. It's never prejudicial. There's no hypocrisy, which is play acting in any form. And it bears a beautiful harvest of righteousness. So let's just look at a couple of these things. I told an individual this week, I said, I am the same in this house as I am at the hub as I am at work. Um, but purity, and this is where for me, part of it's just, you know, I need to learn purity on a better scale. But to me, purity is not thinking the worst of people right off the bat. Now, it can mean you know, uh, being pure as far as, you know, sexual purity, things like that. But to me, purity is you you don't see through a darkened glass toward people. You have a heart that is pure but not naive. So the best example of that is Jesus, where it says in, well, no-brainer, that's kind of stating the obvious. When people state the obvious on shows, me or Mike are like, oh, oh, is that what this is about? <laughs> I wouldn't have guessed that. But where he says... Or it says, he did not commit himself to man because he knew how man was. So he was able to love them with a purity, but he didn't have eyes blinded, right, to how men were. So that's kind of what I mean. There's a difference between purity and coming with a pure love to help people, but na being naive where you think people are naturally good. And have you ever... Have you ever known somebody that always has a friend that's in a state of crisis? Yes. But as soon as the friend gets out of the state of crisis, they're no longer, they, that friendship breaks up. Don't yes. identify as your friend anymore. Well, because <laughs> I, think, uh, I think those people always need somebody in worse shape so they can feel good about themselves. You hit the nail on the head. I have talked to people like that, um, and a lot of them are S personalities. And I let them know it's ego. Mm -hmm. You're getting something out of serving and helping these people. You're actually addicted to that and you're addicted to drama. And it's ego. So ego doesn't just show up as boastfulness. Ego shows up as codependency, I guess and, you could and say. And I think that purity, when we're talking about the purity, mm -hmm. it takes, it, it contaminates that yes. uh, instead of trying to help that person out of pure love of God and, and pure motives, mm -hmm. you mix in, oh, I'm a little bit better. I, it's my or job. Or I feel better. Or, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, and compassionate people can tend to do this as well, which makes the hidden motive hidden. Mm -hmm. 
And there can even be a pride that begins to be displayed that I'm the servant. And I usually see this with uh, marriages where there's a D and an S because it's like the D is narcissistic, psychopathic, etc. And that's probably true. But the S is a victim and a martyr because they're helping everybody. Both are ego. Yeah, I had a friend that's like, I feel so sorry for this lady because she's married to this, you know. I said, no, she's an enabler. He goes and says whatever he wants to. He's rude. He's this. Yep. He's that. And she follows behind yep. and apologizes and tries to make everything right. Yep. And I said, if she just let him deal with his own junk, yep. then part of that would quit. So she's yes. the enabler. She's, she's yes. the helper in yes. bad behavior. Yes. And then a lot of times they play the martyr. Oh, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yeah. So the considerate, of course, but being teachable is also a sign. When you have several people telling you the same thing, or maybe you read a book and there it is, and then you read you know, scripture, there it is, and then someone mentions it on a teaching and there it is, God's trying to teach mm -hmm. you something, right? So you have to be aware of those cycles because usually he wants to deal with something to take you to the next level. So wisdom from God is teachable. Therefore, if you're not teachable, which again, you can be blind to, then you're not operating in his wisdom. Uh, okay, so... Here we have the two sides of wisdom, and I think that answers the question as to why God was not pleased with Asa. So although my strategic aspect of my thinking can appreciate the brilliance of with, he, with, with which he executed that, it was a demonic wisdom because it was bitter jealousy, competition, etc., etc. It wasn't like God said, hey, this is the border, and you enforce it. Which, by the way, when our founding fathers decided it was time to go to war, the orders were, do not fire the first shot because God will never bless an aggressor, an invader. We will only be on the defensive, but we will win. And then they would go into an offensive where they'd start because the war's already started now. So now they're going to go into the, their territory. But the British lied about it. Americans did not fire the first shot. The Brits did, and then it was on. The, the shot that was heard around the world. So that's the thing is, God, you know, like, well, why did God tell him to invade the promised land and kill all, you know, genocide? He just had him commit genocide. Well, I don't have time to go into that. But if you dig around, you'll find every single people group that he said to wipe out had giants. And giants goes back to Genesis 6. So if they didn't have giants, leave them alone. In fact, he said, don't mess with Edom because they're killing giants. So it wasn't like this genocide because God is racist. It was that there was a perversion in the DNA of humanity that had to be dealt with or we were going to end up back at the pre-flood state. Okay, He took no pleasure in that. Okay, so uh, verses 33. In the third year of Asa king of Judah, Basha the son of Aj began to reign over Israel in Terzah, and he reigned 24 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he walked in the way of Jeroboam. And in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. I mean, this is an irony. He is an instrument of judgment. He wipes out Jeroboam. The reason Jeroboam had to be wiped out is because of idolatry and causing the people to sin. And then this guy does the exact same thing. So what that tells me is his heart was evil and wicked when he wiped out Jeroboam. He had no intention of getting rid of idolatry. He just wanted the throne. Okay? 
All right, so let's look at 1 Kings uh, verse 1. Well, if you don't feel like God's real, what are you worried about? Mm -hmm. And I think that's a lot of these kings. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a problem with kings. Personal relationship with God. Yeah. Yeah, well, and like God said, you know, you're going to want kings, and guess what? They're going to take your kids. They're going to take your uh, daughters. They're going to take your horses. They're going to take your land because that's what absolute power does, mm -hmm. you know. That's why our fathers put certain things in place to hopefully protect us from that king mentality. Okay, so verse 1, Then the word of the Lord came to Jehu, the son of Hanani, against Basha, saying, Since I exalted you out of the dust and made you a leader of my people Israel, and you've walked in the way of Jeroboam, and you've made my people Israel to sin, provoking me to anger with their sins, behold, I will utterly sweep away Basha and his house, and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam. <clears throat> Anyone belonging to Basha who dies in the city, the dogs are going to eat. And any one of his who dies in the field, the birds of the heavens will eat. Now the rest of the acts of Basha and what he did in his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? And Basha slept with his fathers and was buried at Terzah, and Elah his son reigned in his place. Moreover, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Jehu, the son of Anani, against Basha and his house, both because of the evil that he did in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the work of his hands, and being like the house of Jeroboam, and also because he destroyed it. See, that's why, you know, truth is in the tension of, of paradox. You have to, okay, so what, which is it? Did God send Basha to wipe out the house of Jeroboam or not? Because it's not fairness for Basha to then be judged for doing the word of the Lord. So that's why I'm saying that it's not as clear-cut as we think. You know what I mean? It is Basha's heart was wicked. God prophesied what was going to happen. He did not necessarily use Basha as an agent. Basha chose to be the judge the convictor and the executor in this case. Right. Therefore, God was not pleased with him because he was hypocritical and he also did the same sin, but he destroyed the house of Jeroboam. Sometimes the judgments of the Lord are actually not judgments. They're simply, he's saying, because you did this, this is going to happen. Mm -hmm. That's what's happening. He already knew the end result. Yes, you can repent. And none of that has to happen, right? So that, that right there, to me, there's something more going on that we need to understand. Okay, Elah, how did he do? Well, in the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah, Elah the son of Basha began to reign over Israel and Terza, and he reigned two years. But his servant, Zimri, commander of half his chariots, conspired against him. When he was at Terza, drinking himself drunk in the house of Arza, who was over the household of Terza, <laughs> goodness, Zimri came in and struck him down and killed him in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. Yeah, it's crazy. When he began to reign, as soon as he seated himself on his throne, he struck down all the house of Basha. He did not leave him a single male of his relatives or his friends. Now he's going to his friends' houses. Thus Zimri destroyed all the house of Basha according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke against Basha by Jehu the prophet. For all the sins of Basha and the sins of Elah his son, which they sinned and which they made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. 
Now the rest of the acts of Elah and all that he did are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings. Now, so the Zimri thing, uh, now get this guy, um, Elah, he only reigned two years, right? Okay, this is the whole uh, Julius Caesar deal. Julius Caesar took over Rome because he had the army. Okay? That was the only way he was able to do it. Then we had Caesars from that point on until Rome fell. Okay, the only way that you can take over a nation is to disarm the people and get control of the military. Yep. What, and I'm going to go political here, what is the primary focus of this administration with the military? Woke. So they're indoctrinating the military that some Americans are enemies because as you condition the military to look at the people as enemies, you will have no problem killing them. Okay? So it's very important that our military stay in possession of we the people because we have the greatest authority. Next states, next federal government. So this is what Zimri did. But get this. Look at this. Okay, so verse 15. In the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, Zimri reigned seven days in Terza. Now the troops were encamped against Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines. The troops who were encamped heard it and said, Zimri has conspired and he's killed the king. Therefore all Israel made Omri, the commander of the army, king over Israel, that day in the camp. So Omri went up from Gibbethon and all Israel with him, and they besieged Terza. And when Zimri saw that the city was taken, he went to the citadel of the king's house and burned the king's house over him with fire and died. Because of his sins that he committed, doing evil in the sight of the Lord, walking in the way of Jeroboam, and for the sin which he committed, making Israel to sin. Now the rest of the acts of Zimri and the conspiracy that he made, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? This is nothing but a story of earthly wisdom, devilish wisdom. This dude reigned seven days. Did he even have time to sin yet? <laughs> well, maybe I don't know. he killed everybody. <laughs> true, true. That might have been a biggie. <laughs> So, he didn't contain, get support of all of the army. Omri had it. Now, the name Zimri, it was such an infamous deal, it became a slur against one's adversary. Well, you're just a Zimri. Like a Hitler. Mm -hmm. Like a like Brandon. A, mm -hmm. yeah. Brandon. Let's go, Brandon. <laughs> so, it is. It became this byword. Now, listen to this from the Anchor Yell Bible Dictionary of Zimri as a person. In referring to Jehu as a Zimri, Jezebel may have been referring to any of the several different facts. In other words, Jezebel called Jehu a Zimri. Unlike Basha, who assassinated Nadab in the midst of battle, Zimri did his treacherous work behind the curtain of domestic tranquility when such violence was least expected. Elah was drunk in a private home in Terza when Zimri, presumably entering as a friend, struck him down. Zimri likes, like, likely did so with the help of Elah's chief steward, Arza, who was probably assisting Eli into his stupor. To be a Zimri then may have connotated, uh, or connoted? 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 Or uh, connotated? It's, maybe it's a typo. Or maybe I made up a word, and that's the <laughs> real one. Connoted? Someone who conducts his treachery behind the screen of supposed goodwill and with the help of insiders who ply the victim with hospitality until he's incapable of defending himself. Thus, 
the appropriateness of Jezebel's question when she asked Jehu, her own Zimri, if he is coming in peace, such is the way Zimri's always come. And we know Jehu's like, no, throw her over the edge. And her own servants throw her over the edge, and he kills her, and then the dogs eat her, which we'll get to. Okay, now Omri. I think we're finishing with him. If I, yeah, if I'm not mistaken. Okay, so... That's in verse 21. Then the people of Israel were divided into two parts. So now you have two divided kingdoms. One kingdom is now divided into two parts. Half the people followed Tibni, the son of Ginnath, to make him king, and half followed Omri. But the people who followed Omri became the, overcame the people who followed, followed Tibni, the son of Ginnath. So Tibni died, and Omri became king. In other words, it probably killed him. In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri began to reign over Israel. And he reigned for 12 years. Six years he reigned in Terza. He bought the hill of Samaria from Shimmer for two talents of silver. Then he fortified the hill and called the name of the city that he built Samaria. After the name of Shimmer, the own, owner of the hill. So here's the birthing of Samaria. Okay, Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. For he walked in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in the sins that he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Omri that he did, and the might that he showed, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the house of Israel? I don't know. I haven't read that. And Omri slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria, and then Ahab reigned in his place. So now we're to Ahab, but here is the official establishment of Samaria. So they had already done stuff in Samaria. Jeroboam had already set up you know, the counterfeit Was system and all that. Is it different now? Is it the same place that we just spelled the Y? Samaria? Yeah. I didn't know it was spelled with the Y. Or the modern is. Oh, is it? Oh, I don't know. I know in uh, the New Testament it's spelled the same. I think it's how it's spelled okay. now. So this modern. is like the first dynasty. Now we have dynasties. So you have... You know, Jeroboam could have been a dynasty, but he disobeyed against the Lord. So you got all this fighting, all this stuff going on. A house divided cannot stand, right? So finally they get Omri in, and he actually starts the dynasty of the northern kingdom with the official establishment of Samaria. Now, who on earth is Omri? I want to call him Omri. Omri, Omri. <laughs> He was the first one in the history of the northern Israelite kingdoms to succeed in establishing a ruling structure that lasted for any length of time. The Omri dynasty, which encompassed not only the reigns of Omri and his son Ahab, but also of his grandsons Ahaziah and Joram, they held on to the Israelite throne for a total of 33 years, counting from the beginning of Omri's sole rulership now, to be sure, the Jehu dynasty, which took over the rulership from the Omrites, considered, considerably outdid its predecessor in length of rule, holding fast the reins of power for almost a full century. The royal houses of Omri and Jehu were the only two actual dynasty to appear in the history of the northern kingdom, a history which otherwise was ca uh, characterized by constant changes of rulership and then usurpations of the throne. Now, here's the deal. Omri wasn't even Israelite. This is crazy. So get this. The origins of Omri remain in the dark. The verse which mentions him for the first time, which is 1 Kings 16, 16, doesn't give him the name of his father. It doesn't identify his tribal or regional affiliation. Only his title is given, 
commander of the army. From this, we can conclude that the family of Omri was not of Israelite origin, or they would have included that. So that's interesting. And that he himself belonged to that class of foreign mercenaries, mm. which, since the time of David, had formed the backbone of the Israelite army. Because remember, we uh, hired, what, the Hessians? Uh, the Germans uh, during the Revolutionary War, and also the, the French helped us. So these are like paid mercenaries. According to whether one associates the name Omri with the Arabic or the Amorite language family, one must correspondingly ascribe to his family an Arabic or a Canaanite line of defense. So the entire northern kingdom was taken over by a possible Canaanite. So that's a reversal, right? Uh, since the name Omri is quite likely a shortened form of Omri Yahu, a name containing a theophoric element for Yahweh, one can further assume that he and his family had adopted the Yahwistic faith and had embraced as their own the traditions of Israel. So the name of Omri's daughter, A-T-H-A-L-I-A-H, was also <laughs> contains the theophoric element of Yahweh provides additional evidence for his Yahwistic orientation. In other words, he was not an Israelite, but he adopted their faith. That's crazy. However, in Judah, they never had a king that was not an Israelite or a Jew until Jesus came. So Herod was the first king who was not full-blooded Jew. He was part Jew, part Edomite, or from Esau. Okay, so that fulfills the prophecy in Genesis 49.10 that I think Jacob gave to his sons, and it says this scepter or rule shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute or Shiloh comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Shiloh is an ancient name for peace, but also it refers to the Messiah. So they would have understand, understood that. Omri was commander of the military, therefore Zimri didn't have any real power. Just like Julius Caesar was general of the army and was able to take control, this is the same thing here. So I'm sorry, it wasn't Zimri that had the army, it was Omri. And uh, just to publicly say, like I did in the hub, uh, the um, Pharaoh Nico who told... Josiah, your God told me to fight Assyria. Remember I had said that it was Yahweh in the original language. It's actually Elohim. So anytime I come across stuff that was not correct on, I want to make sure and publicly state it. But this is interesting. So we've now got like a reversal of blessing back into a curse type state where you have a Canaanite. The very people that they ran out is now in control over a majority of the land. That's not a good thing. And I'm not sure how you can adopt the Yahwistic faith if you're worshiping idols. I mean, to me, none of them were Yahwistic because they kept, you know, worshiping idols. So, anyway, but any closing thoughts? Excuse me, any closing thoughts or anything like that before we... It just reminds me of a lot of church dynamics. It really does. Fire a pastor and get another one or intrigue within the congregation to take their spot. You got Jezebels running around trying to steal, you know, people's husbands. And I mean, it's just, you know, this oh, is yeah. stuff. I mean, there's political and arguing and fights going on among different denominations within. I mean, it's. I, I'm very happy that we're not involved in any of that. I don't want to be, you know, where we're all, you know, like 
I don't know, what's a state that's always by itself and never involved in anything? Singapore, France. maybe? <laughs> France? <laughs> I don't want to become like that. I want to have an impact on society, but I don't want to be in man's building and their kingdoms and all that stuff. So this is like six evil kings in a row. Yeah, mm -hmm. in a short period of time. I mean, the Omri dynasty yeah. only lasted 33 years. So we've got, what, two-year reign there, two, another two years, seven days... I mean, it was, what, maybe probably 10 years or a little over that many changes of hands. That's a lot. Yeah. Then you get Ahab. We'll get into him. That's true. Yes. Cry, baby. I don't like Ahab. He's a cry, yeah. baby. <laughs> All right, well, let's pray over our ties. And, uh, Father, we thank you so much for the Word of God and the lessons that are contained in it, you know, just interpreting it through Jesus Christ, understanding that God is good all the time is the key to recognizing and discerning true judgment versus, hey, we're in this mess because we made specific decisions. But what we're most thankful about, as we'll learn and as we'll see, that the minute there is repentance, even just the tiniest little bit, you rush in with forgiveness, kindness, and goodness. I mean, it's incredible. And so, Father, I pray that we don't ever look at the things that maybe we find ourselves in that are difficult because of our own decisions or maybe we find ourselves in difficult situations because of other decisions we pray father that we hang on to judgment loosely jesus came to judge the devil he will judge mankind at his second coming we're called to judge the devil by destroying his works we're called to judge those within Christianity that are committing specific sins. Other than that, we just need to keep our head down and focus on our own development. And that's the lesson I, I hope we take today. I personally want to take today. And so, Father, we ask that you help us do that. And again, the year is going to be 2022. Light, light, light. I ask that you bring light to blind spots, to dangerous spots, to any of those things in our development in you and in our soul that are blinding us or that could cause a downfall or that could be used as a setup from the enemy. And so I ask that you show us those things. Be relentless, Father, in showing us. And also, December has been prophesied as a month to go deep into the presence of the Lord. And I find that when there's often a prophetic word to do such a thing, all of a sudden busyness becomes even more pronounced. So I ask, Father, that you help us to dig deep in spite of all the things that are on our to-do list or products and services to fulfill for our clients, family obligations, Christmas activities. Help us to dig deeper. I ask that you make our time with you quality time. And so we ask that you enable us to do that. We want to give our tithes and offerings to you this morning. We do so with joy. Uh, we are cheerful about this. We are happy to give to you because it is a sign of our loyalty to you, Father, not to the God of this world, not to mammon. We, we delight to give you uh, our tithes and offerings. We ask that Jesus receive them this morning where he is. And Father, direct us to use your money in the best way. And I'm not talking about just the hub. I mean our money in general. You have given us to steward. Help us to do so in a way that delights your heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.